I read a study recently by a professor at Tufts University School of Medicine. He's the director of sleep disorders, and he teaches on what causes dreams and how to understand them. And after all of his years studying case by case of sleep disorders and dream psychotherapy, he's come to this conclusion. Are you ready? When it comes to what causes dreams and how to understand them, this professor, this doctor, Dr. Hartman, says this. He has no idea. <laughs> no idea whatsoever. After centuries and millennia of us dreaming and trying to figure out and discern what the dream's about, the pinnacle of modern medicine and scientific thought says, I give up, I got nothing. He says this in his study. The questions, why do we dream and what is the function of dreaming, are easy to ask, but very difficult to answer. The most honest answer is that we do not know yet the function or functions of dreaming. This ignorance should not be surprising because despite many theories, we do not fully understand even the purpose of sleep. I could tell you that. <laughs> Nor do we know the functions of REM, rapid eye movement sleep, which is when most dreams occur. This study reveals that we don't know much about what happens when we're asleep. Our eyes are closed. We're not unconscious, but our subconscious is active. Our imagination is working. Our dreams, our hopes, sometimes carry over into our dream world. All of us, at some point, have dreamed. Dreamed when we're asleep, but also dreamed when we're awake. We hear of dreams all the time. We talk about a young person. Perhaps you're a young girl and you see a handsome young boy. You'll say, he is dreaming. <laughs> and then you get to know him and the dream becomes what? A nightmare, right? That's pretty much how that goes. <laughs> we use dream language. Martin Luther King Jr., one of the most famous speeches ever given in the United States of America, all revolved around the dream. In fact, talking about America, one of the things that we are born into, one of the ideologies that is like the air that we breathe as Americans is none other than what? The American dream. We don't even know what it's like to live and to work and to raise families without this being the very saturation of our cultural thinking. We're so embedded in it, we can't even see beyond it. We're so in the midst of it, we can't imagine life without it. In the same way that some girl might think some boy is dreamy, and then they find out that dream becomes a nightmare, are there times where we've come to the realization that the American dream, when it's not in its proper place, with the proper perspective, becomes the American nightmare. When we are given and sold a bill of goods that suggests this, if we work hard enough, if we do good enough, then we can advance to a place better than the generation before us. Is that a bad thing? Hear me when I say, no, that's not only a, not a bad thing, 
That's a virtuous thing. But the danger in our culture as we become more and more secular, more and more humanist, more and more godless, and more and more focused on us is that this dream becomes something that it was never meant to be. It can't carry the weight of all of the hopes and the dreams made in every single one of our hearts. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says, God has set eternity in the hearts of men. C.S. Lewis put it like this. If there's nothing in this world that can satisfy you, then does that not reveal that we were made for another world? The American dream becomes the American nightmare when that dream becomes our identity, our security, and leads to idolatry. When a good thing becomes a God thing, that's a bad thing. When that dream becomes our ultimate goal, then it robs the dream of why we were pursuing it to begin with. That's why a lot of us, we're chasing and we're running and we're working and we're sacrificing and we're also going insane, keeping up with the Joneses, trying to get ahead, trying to make a name, trying to carve out a little bit of that American dream. What happens when the Lord speaks into our reality and wakes us up from our slumber and punctuates this drab version of the American dream with his presence and his reality? Let me tell you this. I can tell you what is the most unpopular piece of furniture in your house. And it might not be that hand-me-down from your great-grandmother, Ethel, that the wife, you know, God bless her, she just doesn't want to get rid of, right? No, the worst and the most unpopular piece of furniture in your house is what? Your alarm clock. That's why we invented the snooze button. Because we don't even want to deal with the alarm clock. We'll just delay the inevitable. Just let me sleep a little bit longer. I want to push it off a little bit longer. Let me live in this place of comfort and supposed peace just a little bit longer snooze. We hate the alarm clock. Now, I haven't had to use an alarm clock in 10 years because my alarm clock have names. Ethan, Abigail, Joshua, and Liam. <laughs> We're going to come to a text, a passage where this resounding wake-up call has a name has a deliverer, and has a clear message. And it's given to the most powerful person on the planet Earth at the time. A king is about to be disturbed by a dream. His tenure is about to be revealed for what it is, and all of his plans are about to be disrupted. The alarm clock's going to go off. And believe it or not, I think many of us won't hear this siren call as well as this pagan king does. I think there will be some of us even here today as we study this text. And Nebuchadnezzar is woken up from his hubris and his pride to realize that there is a God in heaven and it's not him. Some of us will miss even what Nebuchadnezzar missed. We'll walk away thinking, dreaming, believing the delusion that we're still king we're still in control. 
and we can control the length of our days and the expanse of our kingdoms. Thank God for Daniel chapter 2. Let's look at it now. Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. We're covering a huge track of land this morning, so I really hope everyone's Bible is open because we want to read this. This is a powerful narrative. Best way to understand the story is to read the story. Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Verse 2. Page 876. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm, meaning that what he's about to say is truth. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. I'm in verse 7 now. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show you its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth, not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing the king asks is difficult. And no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Let's stop right there. Nebuchadnezzar, if you know anything about history, is one of the most influential, powerful dictators the world has ever known. The scope of his kingdom, the boundaries of his empire were seemingly boundless. But he was not only a powerful military force. He was a brilliant cultural mind. Do you remember his assimilation process? How he would take enemies of Babylon, enemies of Nebuchadnezzar, and he would assimilate them into their culture. He would take the best of these cultures and these countries that he invades, and he would assimilate them, help them feel comfortable, and demand their allegiance. In fact, even give them a new name. He was brilliant in his ways to not only shape culture, but he was also a wonderful designer of architecture. One of the eight wonders of the ancient world were the hanging gardens of Babylon. People, nobility, kings from all over the world would come and they would walk through this garden and feel peace and serenity and gaze upon the beauty of Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. 
And yet, here we go. We're in the Bible. And I love how honest and true the Bible is. King Nebuchadnezzar, with all the power, King Nebuchadnezzar, with all of the insight and wisdom, he's actually named after the pagan god Nabu, who is the god of wisdom. Nebuchadnezzar, even with peaceful gardens, now doesn't have peace. He doesn't even have sleep. You see, peace is not something that can be conquered. Peace is not something that can be purchased. Peace only comes when we worship God in spirit and truth, and we know the Prince of Peace. There's no peace of God unless there's peace with God. Nebuchadnezzar has everything that anyone has ever wanted, and he's not even sleeping through the night. And what's disturbing him so badly? Well, we'll find out. But it's ironic that the servants, these wise men, come up to him and say, here in verse 4, O king, live forever. What has Nebuchadnezzar so distraught and so angry and so ready to take out his vengeance upon those charlatans, those magicians, those Chaldeans and astrologers? What? He had a dream that his kingdom would end. When they say, O king, live forever, what's disturbing him is the fact that he's not going to live forever. Is that one day there will be a kingdom after his kingdom. One day Nebuchadnezzar will not sit on the throne. Someone will come and destroy everything that he's done. But his dream will reveal not only the next kingdom and the next kingdom and the next kingdom, but a final, permanent, undestroyable kingdom. And if you're Nebuchadnezzar, you're thinking to yourself, there can be no greater kingdom than mine. There can be no greater king than me. There is no such thing as a kingdom without end. He wakes up and he's thinking to himself, how can this be? Who can this be? When could this be? And he's wise enough to see past the wise men. These wise men that are about to hear an interpretation of the dream. That when they say, God doesn't dwell among flesh. It helps me to think about what we studied last week. These wise men didn't know the wisdom of God's word at the time. But these wise men would hear a vision in this chapter of a king that would come. And his kingdom would be without end. And they would come not only to inaugurate this king, but they would come to worship this king. Because as a fulfillment of prophecy, those wise men from the east bringing gifts of what? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh most likely heard about this prophecy right now. And the Lord is reaching them through the stars. And the Lord is reaching Nebuchadnezzar through his dreams. Does God speak to people through their dreams? I believe so. It's biblical. It's in Joel. It's in the book of Acts. Would I have to say this? Very, very clear. Very, very, very clear. Is that any dream we have comes under the authority of the direct divine revelation of Scripture. Our dreams, we know this because they can be freaky, are subjective. God's word is infallible, objective, and always, always reliable. But yes, I believe God speaks through dreams. I believe God right now 
is speaking to Muslims, to Asians, to people in Africa that might not even know what the name Jesus is. And he shows up in their slumber and he rattles their cages and he so pricks their heart that they are going to go on a path of seeking truth and they won't accept any falsehood. Nebuchadnezzar is not interested in the lies and the games of his magicians. He wants to know the truth. So much so, he's putting the hammer down and he says there are drastic, drastic consequences if he doesn't get that truth right now. So much so, as the story goes in verses 12 through 16, he puts out an edict. All the wise men are going to be the dead men unless someone can tell him his dream and interpret it. And that leads us to one of the wise men, a young man, probably 18 years old, who the name of this book is named after, Daniel. Let's pick up the story in verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Let's pause right there. It's amazing to me, is it not? 18 years old. 19 years old, maybe? This young man hears that the king's coming for him. If he doesn't do the unthinkable, if he doesn't deliver on a miracle... Now, we might be a little older than 18. We might be, in fact, decades past 18. But how much can our circumstances rattle us and rob us of our calmness? Daniel is so calm because the first thing that he does before he freaks out is he goes to the Lord in prayer. How many of us know this? That almost everyone believes prayer is helpful but very few of us believe prayer is essential. Daniel is able to stay calm because he knows that there's a king more powerful than the king. He knows that there's one even greater than Nebuchadnezzar, and he's going to bring his concerns to the king, and then we have a contrast of characters. Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man on earth, cannot sleep. What happens? Daniel hears Daniel hears that his life may be forfeit, and then he takes a nap. Yeah, God's got this. I'm going to pray. And in the night, a vision comes, and the vision is a revelation, not only of the interpretation, but of the dream itself. So he wakes up praising God. You know the Lord works when you wake up praising God. I tend not to wake up praising God. I tend to keep hitting that snooze button or telling the kids to go back to bed, right? (laughs) No, when the Lord meets you, it leads to true praise. He says this in verse 20, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong what? Wisdom and might. And then he continues to praise the Lord. So jumping down now to verse 24, Daniel goes to the leader of the wise men, Arioch, and he hears about this edict, and he pleads with Arioch to get an audience with the king because he's received this revelation. Let's jump now to verse 26. 
He's in the king's presence, and the king says to Daniel, the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Verse 27, Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery the king has asked. But, hallelujah, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Let's stop right there. What we see here is a good reminder that when the Lord speaks to us, speaks to us through his word, our job is very simple and yet many are not faithful in it. What do I mean by that? Our job is not to add to God's word or to subtract from God's word. Those who are legalistic want to add to God's word. Those who want a gospel of license tend to subtract from God's word. It's really not that complicated. God says it, we communicate it. The Bible has plenty of editors all over the world, everywhere. Everyone wants to edit his word. He doesn't need more editors. He needs more messengers. Daniel gets this word, and can you envision standing before the same king that said he's going to take him out? Here's the message. And he tells them the dream and the interpretation, and the dream and the interpretation reveal that Nebuchadnezzar isn't going to sit on the throne forever. And yet Daniel still speaks. He still delivers this word. Because, once again, when our fear of man is greater than our fear of God, our respect, our reverence of God, what happens? People become big and God becomes small. Daniel, in this place of worship, realizes there's no one greater and no thing greater than his good God. So he reveals what the interpretation of the dream is and the dream as well. Let's jump now down to verse 36. He says this, verse 36, Daniel chapter 2, page 877. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven was given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of heaven, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Let's stop right there. What is he saying? Well, first off, we have to take into account that he's telling the truth that Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful person on planet earth, but this would be an offense to Nebuchadnezzar. Because even as he's saying, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the ruler, the ruler of not only the men, you're the ruler of the children. Not only the children, the ruler of the beasts, the ruler of the land, you rule everything. But where did that rule come from? Not from you. It came from God. We need to be reminded. Let's be honest with ourselves, church. How many of us, when we read this story, we relate more with Nebuchadnezzar than we do with Daniel? Because we're convinced that everything that we have came from us. Every good thing that I have is because of my hard work. It's because of my due diligence. It's because of my perseverance. And yes and Amen. Yes and amen. You worked hard. Praise God. You deserve it. But the truth is, is that your health to work was not from you. Your gifting 
to succeed was not a gift that you gave to yourself. The days that you have, even the breaths that we're breathing right now, it's all a gift. So when we understand it's all a gift from God, what happens? We get to enjoy the gift for what it is, a gift. And we don't exalt the gift above the gift giver, which robs the gift of everything we wanted from it to begin with. Nebuchadnezzar's understanding, there's a God of heaven, there's a king above him who's given him this rule. He is the head of gold. Now, how many of us love history? How many of us are just amazed by prophecy and scripture? Because this is one of the coolest parts in all of your Bible. You're about to see this? You ready? You excited? We're going to walk through prophecy, and it is altogether astounding how what you're about to hear comes to fulfillment in a very exact way. So the Babylonian Empire, ruled under Nebuchadnezzar, is the head of gold on this massive statue. That's part of the dream. And now he talks about another kingdom. Verse 39. Can we pull up this slide, Josh? Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. What we're seeing here is the progression of kingdoms. The progression of kingdoms. So you can read any history book, and you'll know that leading up to the Roman Empire and the kingdom of Caesar, there was a succession of these major empires and their rulers. It went from Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar to the Medo-Persians, which is talking about here, right? The Medo-Persians under Darius. And then it went to the Grecian, Greek empire, the Hellenistic culture under none other than Alexander. It says here, listen to God's word. It says that this third kingdom, the Grecian kingdom, which will rule over all the earth. Alexander the Great ruled most of the known world. And how does the famous adage go? Alexander wept because as he looked out, there was no more kingdoms to conquer. This is a direct fulfillment of scripture, but it's all leading, it's all culminating to the next two kingdoms. The next kingdom to follow the Grecian empire was none other than the epitome of ancient power. Whenever you think empires, whenever you think about global domination, there's one nation that rises to the forefront, and that is Rome. This next part of the vision speaks to that, but then a kingdom that would even outlast Rome itself. Verse 40, all eyes in the Bible, and there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things, and like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. Let's pause right there. This kingdom is powerful. Strong as iron, stronger than all the predecessors, its power is to break every single other kingdom. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 41, And as you saw the feet and the toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. So let's pause right there. We've been walking down this statue, this vision that Nebuchadnezzar had, and now we're at the bottom, we're at the base, we're at the foundation. And he is saying that, yes, it's ruling with iron. It's shattering every other kingdom, but it's divided. When you hear stories of Julius Caesar, almost instantly you think of who betrayed him, right? Et to who? Brute. Caesar's house was divided. Caesar was assassinated 
by someone close to him. If you study anything of Roman history, you'll know that they were invaded centuries later by a kingdom that was much weaker than them. But what happened? It wasn't their boundaries. It wasn't their military strength that began to fade. No, they were defeated from the inside out. And this is what happens with any strong nation. Is that we're concerned about the enemy outside of our camps. And we're not aware of the weakening inside of our own border. This happens in all the nations, right? So this leads, as we clearly see Rome in this fourth kingdom, leads to a final, forever, undestroyable kingdom. Let's read about it here in verse 44. And in those days, the kings, that God of heaven will set up a kingdom. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall, what does it say? Never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand, what does it say? Forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain by no human hand, and that it broke the pieces of iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is, sure, is certain, and its imp- interpretation is sure. This kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar had a vision of is none other than the kingdom of Christ. Jesus arrives right at the pinnacle of Roman power, supposed Pax Romana, supposed Roman peace. This is all the fulfillment of Daniel. Isn't this astounding? And now Jesus Christ has begun a kingdom, has begun a movement that has been the most influential movement that the world has ever seen. Jesus Christ has impacted more people across the globe than any other person who's ever walked planet Earth or has ever drawn breath. Jesus Christ is a leader, is a king, and his kingdom endures forever. In the word, that is clearly the message. Let's look at this. It says it here in the gospel. The very beginning of the gospel of Mark. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You see, Jesus wasn't made king by his disciples. No, Jesus declared himself to be king. And he proudly proclaimed that he's bringing the kingdom. This has always been the message. But his kingdom would be without army. His kingdom would be without boundary. But his kingdom would be the kingdom and the final kingdom forever and ever. You know who recognizes this? Not only Daniel and not only eventually Nebuchadnezzar, but even other people throughout history. Let's look at a couple quotes real quick. This is from Josephus in a remarkable historical account. Josephus was a first century Jew and the most prominent and influential historian in Rome at the time. And he wrote this in Testimonium Flavivian. He says this about Jesus. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as receive the truth with pleasure, 
he drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. Is everyone paying attention? Because this Jewish Roman historian is about to say some remarkable things. Jesus was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. For he appeared to them alive again on the third day, as the divine prophets have foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians, so named from him, are not extinct to this day. Josephus says, not only is Jesus the Christ, the anointed king, not only did he die, but Jesus is alive and his movement has not ended. This was about 30 years after Jesus' ascension, right? Amazing. Still going on today. The movement is still moving. Let's look not just at a historian, but let's look at a king and an emperor, Napoleon Bonaparte. Napoleon said this, I know men and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Listen, upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. It's remarkable. Okay, want to hear another one? How about a pretty smart guy named Albert Einstein? Einstein said this, I am a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. Jesus is too colossal for the pen of phrase mongers. No man can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. Look at this last line. No myth is filled with such life. Astounding. All right, one more. I got one more. Here we go. Here we go. H.G. <laughs> Wells, he says this, I'm a historian. H.G. Wells says, I'm not a believer. I'm a historian. I am not a believer. But I must confess, as a historian, that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. It's all spoken centuries before Christmas. All prophesied long before Jesus was born in the manger in Bethlehem. You see, the prophecy about Bethlehem began in Babylon. And these people who don't even know and believe in Jesus recognize that his influence is the greatest influence the world's ever seen. So before we come to the table, the question is, what do we do with him? Nebuchadnezzar goes. Alexander, Caesar, Napoleon, Charlemagne. Eventually all these kings cease to exist. Yet the movement of Jesus Christ pushes on. Can you hear it now? It's a Sunday morning. And hundreds of millions of people, hundreds of millions, if not billions of people, are gathered in churches to not just try to be like Jesus, but to give him honor and glory and praise as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Either Jesus was a raving lunatic, either Jesus was an outright liar, 
or Jesus was in fact Lord? Those are your three options. None of those options are he was just a good guy. He claimed to bring the kingdom. The question is, who's the king? The king in my heart, the king in my life, the king in my family. When we come to the cross, when we come to the table, what we're doing is recognizing that we need to have an exchange of kingdoms. As Colossians says, Jesus moves us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And that kingdom is undestroyable and will never fade or fail. Amen? Amen. Let's pray, church. Let's pray. Lord, your word just said that this vision that Nebuchadnezzar had and that Daniel interpreted speaks of a kingdom that would come. On this side of the cross, that kingdom has come and yet is still coming. So when we come to your word and we come to your table, we are going to hear Jesus say that this is the new covenant. His body broken, his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. The king laying down his life for his servants so that they could live forever. But even, Lord, help us hear how the king says he is alive and the king says he will return. Hallelujah. That's good news. This is a reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 